before I get started um, talking about George Whitfield, I want to let you guys know that uh, I am planning a, um, a Savannah Church History tour later this year for the people of EBC. They had an assignment. They had to read the two-volume uh, George Whitfield biography in order to be able to come on this trip. But I do want to invite all of you who are interested, and once I have the details, I will send it to Christina to get out to you. There will be a minimal cost for some of uh, the tour, but uh, we're going to go to the Bethesda, uh, the Bethesda home. Uh, we're going to see where the first uh, Baptists were baptized in Georgia there, do the tour of the museum, uh, and preach a George Whitfield sermon at Whitfield Chapel, and then we'll go downtown and visit First African Baptist Independent Presbyterian Christ Church, where Whitfield and Wesley pastored. We'll go to the Wesley statue and also uh, First Baptist of Savannah. So it'll take a couple days, but hopefully some of you will be able to join us. I know when you live in a place, you don't take advantage of what's there and oftentimes don't go see these things. So um, I would love to have you join us and hang out with some of the EBC folks as well as we do that together. But uh, tonight I will be sharing with you about George Whitfield, one of my heroes of the faith. Um, and hopefully, as you hear this, you'll be interested more in his work, in his preaching, in his journals, and uh, all that he accomplished in the ways that the Lord used him uh, in the time that he was upon this earth. Well, George Whitfield became a Christian at the age of 20. He was ordained to the gospel ministry at the age of 21. And by the time he was 23, he was one of the most well-known men in all of England. When he preached, enormous crowds would gather, and he soon became an international superstar. His journals were bestsellers. He was the object of both positive and negative media attention on both sides of the Atlantic. His critics were harsh, and many among the ranks of the clergy in his day raised concerns about his preaching and his approach to ministry. While he's not nearly as well-known today as he was in the 18th century, the Anglican missionary evangelist lived a life that is worthy of our consideration today. His legacy is one of unrelenting commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the conversion of sinners. George Whitfield lived and died for the Lord Jesus. And the history of England and most certainly the history of the United States would not be what it is today were it not for his remarkable influence. Many historians refer to Whitfield as the father of modern evangelism. The first great awakening in America came about by God's sovereign design, and Whitfield was the primary means that God used to make it what it was. And it is no exaggeration to say that his preaching was very instrumental in the American Revolution and the founding of the American Republic. Now, the thing that Whitfield was known for, above all else, was his oratorical skill. The Shakespearean actor David Garrick said, I would give a hundred guinea if I could say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. Benjamin Franklin once wrote, he can bring men to tears merely by pronouncing the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> Sarah Edwards, a wife of the great Jonathan Edwards, said of Whitfield, he is a born orator. But Whitfield was also known as a godly man. He was so beloved by so many people because he was not like so many of the clergy of his day whose lives were lived in complete contradiction to their words. George Washington said of Whitfield, upon his lips the gospel appears even to the coarsest of men as sweet and as true as in fact it is. And Patrick Henry remarked, would that every bearer of God's glad tidings be as fit a vessel of grace as Mr. Whitfield. So let's consider his life and his ministry, his relationships, and his impact as it has continued in our country. George Whitfield was born on December 16, 1714, in Gloucester, England, as the sixth and youngest child of Thomas and Elizabeth Whitfield. Thomas and Elizabeth owned an inn called the Bell Inn, where he was born. 
Well, his father died when he was two years old, and so he was raised solely by his mother until she remarried when he was eight years old. Unfortunately, only a few years later, citing that their marriage was an unhappy one, Elizabeth's husband left the family, and the two were divorced. And you've got to think of the time period. That was a very rare thing to happen at that point in time. So as one might expect with a young boy, as young as he was, the youngest of several children, a busy mother, a dysfunctional home, Whitfield found his way into trouble, and he began stealing and lying and fighting. But at the age of 12, Whitfield began attending the Crypt Grammar School at St. Mary de Crypt. It was here that he developed a quick and growing interest in reading and performing plays. He wanted to be an actor. And when he was 15, he grew tired of school, and knowing that the family's financial situation was a bad one, and it prevented him from being able to attend Oxford like many of his ancestors to go beyond that, he convinced his mother to allow him to leave school and instead begin to work at the Bell Inn with his family. So he would wash the floors and he would provide services to the customers. George would entertain the guests with skits that he had memorized, and he enjoyed meeting all of the traveling actors and discussing their craft with them. And in these early years, he developed his speaking abilities and became comfortable in front of crowds of people. At 16 years old, he began reading the Greek New Testament and also became proficient in the Latin. Eventually, One of his former schoolmates from his primary school returned from studies at Oxford, explaining to George that he was able to fund his education as a servitor. And that is a a servant, so you'd be a student, and you would be a servant to the wealthier students. You'd do their laundry and clean their floors and make their beds, and uh, their families would pay for you to go to school as long as you serve their children. So Elizabeth decided this was a good path for George to follow, and so he returned briefly to the Crip School to hone his classical education, and then at the age of 18, he entered the Pembroke College at Oxford University. Now, throughout his time at Oxford, George did the chores of those students, of the families who could afford to pay for their tuition, and his time working in the family inn was a good preparation for George, and it made him very popular among the wealthy students at the school. Whitfield regularly attended the Anglican Church as he was at school, and just prior to entering Oxford, he became more and more concerned with the condition of his soul and his need to understand the Scriptures. At the time, the English churches were essentially preaching deism and were void of any spiritual life whatsoever. The people feared spiritual enthusiasm because they associated it with the English civil wars and the execution of Charles I. And so, dead wrote religion was the way uh, things were in the Church of England at the time. So George committed himself to singing the psalms and praying each day, and his concern for the lifelessness of the church continued to intensify. After his first year at Oxford, Whitfield's friend, Charles Wesley, invited him to breakfast and lent him a few books. The most significant Whitfield recounts was a book called The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Skogel. And if you haven't read that, it's a small little book. It's a wonderful book. I'd encourage you to get that. Whitfield wrote this. He said, In a short time, he let me have another book entitled The Life of God and the Soul of Man. And though I had fasted, watched, and prayed, and received the sacrament so long, yet I never knew what true religion was till God sent me that excellent treatise by the hands of my never-to-be-forgotten friend. At my first reading it, I wondered what the author meant by saying that some falsely place religion in going to church, doing hurt to no one, being constant in the duties of the closet, and now and then reaching out their hands to give alms to their poor neighbors. Alas, thought I, if this be not religion, what is? God soon showed me. For in reading a few lines further, that true religion was a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us. A ray of divine light was instantaneously darted in upon my soul, and from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must be a new creature. 
So Whitfield was thoroughly undone and yet still unconverted. He joined a group called the Holy Club, which was the group uh, that was the Methodists at the time, and he worked tirelessly to live a very rigid life. He accounted for every minute of his day. Uh, if you recall, uh, thinking about Martin Luther, that was very much his practice. Everything he did, always keeping track of it so he knew what to repent of, but Whitfield learned it was of no real spiritual good to him. The more he did, the more he felt the weight of his sin on his shoulders. And so he began to go to great extremes in his practices. He would fast from eating and even speaking to other people. At one point, he wrote in his journal, it was now suggested to me that Jesus Christ was amongst the wild beasts when he was tempted. And so George was convinced that he needed to follow the Lord's example, and he would spend long hours, hours outside in the cold, praying and even sometimes laying down on the ground. And in time, it took a significant toll on his health, even to the point of one of his hands turning black. It was probably a frostbite. Those closest to him grew increasingly concerned for George's well-being and even feared at one point that he might die. For seven weeks, George was terribly ill. He found himself so thirsty that no matter how much he drank, he could not find relief. And he remembered that when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, I thirst. And so George threw himself on his bed and he cried out in prayer, I thirst, I thirst. And this was truly the first time ever he looked outside himself for any spiritual help. In almost an instant, Whitfield recalls, The spirit of mourning was taken away from me, and I knew what it was truly to rejoice in God my Savior, and for some time could not avoid singing psalms wherever I was. And so this is when Whitfield was truly transformed by the Holy Spirit, and brought from darkness to light as a new creation in Jesus Christ. Near the end of his life, Whitfield said in a sermon, I know the place. It may be superstitious perhaps, but when I go to Oxford, I cannot help running to that place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me the new birth. Well, soon after, Whitfield returned home to his family to recuperate, and while he was there, he spoke to as many people as he could about the gospel. Several people were converted and began to gather around him and to encourage one another, and it took nine months, but eventually George recovered and returned to Oxford to complete his studies. He was a very outspoken Christian, talking to anyone he could about the gospel, he faced opposition, but in time he was able to pass all of his classes and eventually graduated with a degree. Now initially, Whitfield was unconvinced that he should enter into the gospel ministry. He didn't think that he was well suited for the task, but several of his friends urged him to consider it, and so he eventually visited with the, the, bis the bishop of Gloucester and was ultimately persuaded. The bishop told him, uh, the bishop's name was Martin Benson, and he told him that he would not typically ordain a man who was under the age of 23. That sounds crazy to us today. But he said, I would, I would never ordain someone under the age of 23, but in your case, because of your abilities, because of your unique gift, and because of your godly character, I'm ready to ordain you whenever you are ready. And so initially, Whitfield... Uh, resisted this, but in time he was made to be a deacon of the Church of England on June 20th, 1736, and the following Sunday he preached his first sermon at St. Mary de Crypt, and he called it the necessity and benefit of religious society. Now remember, the churches are dead. They're preaching deism, there is no spiritual life, and what he meant by this was the necessity of true Christian community and life within uh, the body of Christ. And so in his journal, Whitfield wrote that after he preached, the bishop received numerous complaints and made 15 people mad. Now George went back to Oxford to continue to further his education but while he was there, he was asked by a friend to fill in for him at the Tower of London Chapel in the pulpit. 
He was not convinced that he was ready for full-time ministry. He later said that he had in his mind that he wanted to have at least 100 sermons ready before he thought he was ready for full-time ministry, but he wanted to help his friend. And so he preached, and he was initially mocked as a boy parson. He's a little boy. But after hearing him, many people changed their opinion. And in November of 1736, George spent several weeks in the small village of Dummer, where, in his words, he met with and ministered to, quote-unquote, normal people. In other words, he meant that they weren't Oxford academics or the highbrow London types. And in a very short time, at a very young age, Whitfield became the most popular the most widely heard, and the most published preacher in London, but he would never take a permanent pulpit. It was during this time that George was receiving letters from his friends John and Charles Wesley, his old Holy Club schoolmates, who were now serving as missionaries in the New World in the colony of Georgia. He wanted to join them after hearing of their many accounts and successes But it wasn't until they asked him specifically to make the journey that he decided to go. He believed it was his calling from God to be a missionary, and so he began making arrangements for the trip. Initially, he had a meeting with General James Oglethorpe, who was the founder and first governor of Georgia, and was offered the opportunity to travel with him. However, Oglethorpe was not yet ready to make the journey, And so Whitfield spent his time preaching to large gatherings of people while his popularity continued to increase. Many accounts from the time indicate that George's popularity was as a result of his lively preaching and his quote-unquote new message that one must be born again. Imagine that. A preacher of the gospel and his message is perceived to be new because he's saying you must be born again. Again, the Church of England was known for dry, dull sermons with a humanistic message, but nothing of true biblical religion. In 1737, Whitfield was becoming so popular that a journalist wrote an article about him, the young preacher who was preparing to travel to the colony of Georgia as a missionary. George hated the article because he thought it took away from what he was preaching about Christ. And so he asked the journalist and said, never write another piece about me again. But the journalist told him that as long as people were buying papers to read them, he would keep writing about him. Now, little did he know at the time, this encounter would have a profound impact on how Whitfield would conduct himself in the ministry for years to come when he would eventually begin publishing accounts of his preaching and his printed sermons. He would run advertisements for where he would be to preach, and it was all with the intention of drawing more and more people to hear his new message about the new birth. Well, in December of 1737, Whitfield got on a ship with General James Oglethorpe, and he began the treacherous journey to the colonies. The ship sailed across the Atlantic Ocean and arrived at the port in Savannah, Georgia in May 1737. The ship crew and soldiers did not initially like Whitfield on the ship because, as you might imagine, he was always preaching to them and talking to them about their need for Christ. But in time, they warmed to him because he showed them great love. And so in time, some of them were converted and he would preach the gospel to them and teach them the Bible. At this time, George Whitfield was 25 years old when he arrived in the colonies, and he quickly became America's very first celebrity. The historian Mark Knoll wrote, When he arrived in the colonies, he was simply an event. It didn't matter where he was. If Whitfield was preaching, large crowds would gather, stores would close, farmers would leave their fields, and even important business and legal proceedings would stop in order to go out and hear him. It's reported that when he preached in the Boston Common, the crowd that gathered was larger than the city's entire population. And in Philadelphia, there were people spread out over a dozen city blocks, In Savannah, he drew the single largest crowd that ever gathered at one time in any of the colonies. Historian Harry Stout wrote, He was a preacher capable of commanding mass audiences 
and offerings across two continents without any institutional support though the she- uh, through the sheer power of his personality. When Whitfield made Savannah his home in the colonies, he began his duties as the parish priest at Christ Church. Now, Christ Church hasn't always been where it is today on Johnson Square. It, uh, it was somewhere else initially that was built there after the first was destroyed by a fire. But his ministry was simple. He would go from house to house, catechizing and praying with and teaching the families. Various churches and schools were started under his encouragement. The local population really liked him because he was far less rigid than John Wesley, who had been ministering here for quite some time in his practice and preaching. He loved the people. He showed them great compassion. Early in his ministry in Savannah, George remembered something that his friend Charles Wesley had told him about the climate and about widespread disease causing many of the adults to die and their children being left as orphans. Others had arrived in the colonies to escape uh, from debtors' prisons in England so they could work in the colonies to repay their debts, but as soon as they landed in Georgia, they moved north to where nobody knew who they were, but they often left their children behind. So Savannah was filled with orphans. So someone had to care for these orphans, and Whitfield thought this was an area where he should focus his attention. He committed himself to that when he returned to England, that he would be ordained as a priest in the Anglican church, and he would get permission from the Georgia trustees to raise funds for an orphanage. And with the help of lobbying by powerful friends, the trustees approved his plan, and they gave him a plot of land just south of Savannah. He was ordained as an Anglican priest, and his assigned parish was much of Britain and the American colonies. Imagine that. (laughs) You're a priest, and this is your area. Britain, the U.S. It's not like he could hop on a plane and get back and forth. Now, unlike his previous stint in London, this time he received significant resistance, and many of the pulpits were considered closed to him either because of his Reformed theology or his methodology. And so Whitfield was not deterred. He was determined. He was going to obey what he believed was God's will for his ministry. So he decided to be an open-air preacher, which drew even more criticism from those who considered him to be a radical. He wrote in his journal, My preaching in the fields may displease some timorous, bigoted men, but I am thoroughly persuaded it pleases God, and why should I fear anything else? Years later, he wrote, I intend to go about preaching the gospel to every creature. His open-air preaching continued to draw large crowds wherever he went, with one sermon in Hyde Park reportedly drawing as many as 80,000 hearers. Over one summer of preaching, it is believed that over one million people heard Whitfield proclaim the gospel in London. On the hearing of his intention to return to the colonies to, to preach to the Indian, quote, savages, someone asked Whitfield why he did not go preach to the savages of Kingswood. Kingswood was a mining area just south of uh, Bristol. There was no church there, and the people were considered rough. So Whitfield went to Kingswood with his friend and publicist and financier, William Seward, and he stood on Hanham Mountain preaching from the Beatitudes as the miners came out of the pits. And on the first day, there was a small crowd of 200 people, and he promised to return, and when he did, the crowd was said to have numbered in the thousands. Whitfield wrote in his journal, "...having no righteousness of their own to renounce, they were glad to hear of a Jesus that was a friend to publicans, and came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." The first discovery of their being affected was to see the white gutters made by their tears, which plentifully fell down their black cheeks as they came out of the coal pits. Hundreds and hundreds of them were soon brought under deep convictions, which, as the event proved, happily ended in a sound and thorough conversion. The change was visible to all, though numbers chose to impute it to anything rather than the finger of God." 
Well, not long afterwards, Whitfield was asked, uh, he asked his friend John Wesley to take over the work in Bristol so he could return to the colonies. When Wesley got there, he was amazed at what he saw. John Wesley wrote, Saturday, March 31st, 1739, in the evening I reached Bristol and met Mr. Whitfield there. I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields, of which he set me an example on Sunday. Having been all my life till very lately so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church. A week later, Wesley wrote, I preached to about 1,500 on top of Hannam Mountain in Kingswood. Whitfield returned to the colonies while Wesley stayed back and did the work in Bristol. He continued open-air preaching as he was doing in London, and the response in the New World was very much the same. He had many supporters. He also had many opponents. More than once, Whitfield's outdoor sermon was followed by a parish pastor denouncing him in the pulpit, either because of his methods or because of his Calvinism or because of both. Whitfield, however, did not preach open-air sermons on Sunday mornings. And he always attended services at the local churches. He did not view himself as a competitor to the local preachers. The next year, in 1740, construction began on the orphanage that would become his base of operations and to this day remains as the Bethesda home for boys. By this time, the preaching of Jonathan Edwards in Connecticut had ignited the first great awakening in the Northeast, also accompanied by fierce criticisms over his theology and practice. The supporters of the awakening, however, were no longer silent. They attacked their critics. They called them unconverted Pharisees. Whitfield himself warned about the many unconverted ministers in the Anglican church and even accused the Archbishop of Canterbury of being an unconverted man. Whitfield was a passionate Calvinistic evangelist, and he would eventually become a preaching hero to Charles Spurgeon, who intentionally modeled his evangelistic preaching after Whitfield. When George preached, his aim was for immediate conversions, for sinners to believe on Christ then and there, to repent of their sins on the spot without years of spiritual meandering and uncertainty. This was a constant emphasis in what can be seen in nearly all of Whitfield's sermons. And if you read his journals, there were times when he would preach to large crowds, and to him it seemed as though very few were converted. And he would cry out to the Lord and ask, Lord, what has gone wrong? Why have you left me? Why have you not blessed my ministry today? He was after souls, and when he didn't get them, it grieved him deeply. Well, Whitfield made an incredible 13 transatlantic voyages to bring the gospel to the American colonies and back and forth to London. Each one of those could easily have ended Whitfield's life, and some nearly did. He knew the risks full well, but through prayer and conversation with Christian associates, he determined to follow God's leading wherever it took him. Now, George Whitfield was never a model of physical health. He did not care for his body at all, and many concluded that the pace at which he moved from location to location on his preaching tours was reckless. Convenience and comfort were no considerations for Whitfield. The proclamation of the gospel to him was too important to worry about such things. Whenever he was in London, Whitfield sought to find places where he could preach in the open air. Moorfields in the city of London was a place where the lower classes would often meet for entertainment, and so he took the opportunity of a gathered crowd to preach the gospel to them. Well, the stallholders, the little shops out on the street, the stallholders were unhappy with the competition, and they used a variety of methods to try and silence him, but it was all without effect. He also preached at Kennington Common in South London, near the place where all of the hangings took place in public, and at Blackheath in southeast London. In Blackheath, there was a small mound on which Whitfield would preach, and it is still known today as Whitfield's Mound. Through the 1740s, Whitfield's preaching faced increasing opposition in London, 
not only from angry Anglicans, but from local businessmen who lost money because people's lifestyles began to change radically. Threats of violence were ever increasing, and each time he returned to the colonies, he was faced with more and more criticism as well. In his preaching, Whitfield often emphasized that beholding God's grace was naturally a result in a person's wholehearted righteousness. And this was not in contradiction to to Christian liberty. This was equally an offense to the man who desired no accountability to a moral standard whatsoever and the man who desired to reduce the faith to a series of moral demands. To both the lawless and the legalist, George Whitfield was offensive. His message of life in Christ was intolerable. So despite his wide acclaim and his great popularity, Whitfield was often ridiculed, scorned, and persecuted for his faith and preaching. Hecklers would show up and blow trumpets and shout obscenities at him as he preached. Enraged mobs would often attack his meetings. They would rob the people and beat them and humiliate them as they were there to listen. Whitfield himself was often subjected to unimaginable brutality. He was clubbed twice, stoned once, whipped at least a half dozen times, and beaten a half dozen more. One time he wrote in his journal, I was honored with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cat thrown at me. Nevertheless, the Lord was gracious, and a great number were awakened unto life, but it was all worth it just to save one's soul. One man came to throw stones at Whitfield only to abandon his mission, and he later came up to Whitfield and he confessed, Sir, I came here with the intention to break your head, but God through your ministry has given me a broken heart. It was conversations like this that motivated Whitfield to endure the dangers that he faced. Now, amazingly, it was not only people in the communities who condemned Whitfield's work. He was also violently opposed by the religious establishment, accused of being a fanatic or being intolerant and of fanning the flames of vile bigotry. He was often in more danger of attack from clergy than he was by those who were worldly. Whitfield biographer Arnold Dallimore wrote, Whitfield's entire evangelistic life was an evidence of his physical courage. He fearlessly faced his opposition and continued in his work. Though often stung by by the anger and the opposition he faced, he refused to take it personally, attributing it rather to the offense of the gospel. Instead, according to Dallimore, he sallied forth with great determination and evident valor. Now, sometimes the number of people who gathered to hear Whitfield preach would frighten him. There were many loud outbursts of emotion in the middle of his sermons. He regularly had to cut his preaching short, unable to hear over all of the wailing and weeping and screeching of the people. At the Boston Common, Whitfield implored the people, put your faith in Jesus Christ, the kind of sincere faith their Puritan forefathers embraced. It did not matter if their parents were Christians. It did not matter if they, pray, uh, if they prayed or attended church or read their Bibles. Whitfield wanted to know if they had experienced the new birth of conversion. And concluding this sermon, he told them that it was time for him to go. Other audiences needed to hear the preaching of the gospel as well. And so Whitfield wrote of that day, Numbers, great numbers melted into tears when I talked of leaving them. Well, this was a snapshot of Whitfield's preaching ministry, but what about many of his relationships? As with any faithful ministry, the relationships that Whitfield had with others were very important to what he did and how he did it and how all of that was shaped. So I've already mentioned John and Charles Wesley, but I want to talk more about them. As was already mentioned, Whitfield's relationship with John and Charles Wesley began during his time at Oxford. George's relationship with John was the most prominent, and the Lord used those two men mightily in their open-air evangelism. They worked closely together for the same goal, which was winning souls to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Both men were ordained in the Church of England, binding them to the 39 articles of faith, which are explicitly Calvinistic. That's the statement of faith that was used uh, to begin writing the Westminster Confession of Faith. But Wesley was influenced more by English Arminians and the German Moravians who were decidedly non-reformed. They tended to be mystical and subjective in their spirituality. And so as his convictions increased, Wesley became more outspoken about his Arminian beliefs and began preaching explicitly in opposition to Calvinistic doctrines. Well, behind the scenes, Whitfield wrote to John's brother Charles Wesley and pleaded with him to try and avoid a public split. He wrote, If your brother will be but silent about the doctrine of election and final perseverance, there will never be a division between us. The very thought of it shocks my soul. But John Wesley had made a very firm decision. By casting lots, which was a practice that the Wesleyans commonly practiced, Wesley believed that God had not only confirmed his teaching against Calvinism, but told him to publish his views. So in mid-1739, Whitfield addressed Wesley directly, telling him that he had heard of Wesley's intention to, quote, print a sermon against predestination. It shocks me to think of it. What will be the consequence but controversy? Whitfield implored him to maintain his silence and to remind him that there were already public rumors of animosity between the two of them. But in 1740, when Wesley was ministering in Bristol among the miners and Whitfield was in the colonies, Wesley published a sermon entitled Free Grace. And in it, he attempted to stop the spread of Calvinism in the awakening by disproving the doctrines of election, reprobation, particular redemption, and the perseverance of the saints. He charged that these doctrines were unbiblical, blasphemous, demonic, and detrimental to holiness and evangelism. Whitfield replied to his friend in print with a letter to the Reverend Mr. John Wesley in answer to his sermon entitled Free Grace. A very catchy title. In it, he gently but firmly corrected Wesley point by point. He further exposed Wesley's inconsistency in rejecting unconditional election, which was explicitly taught in the 39 articles to which both of them had sworn allegiance. He also rebuked Wesley for teaching perfectionism and for uh, presumptuously casting lots rather than prayerfully studying the Scriptures before he published the sermon. With Whitfield and other Calvinistic Methodists directly in his sight, Wesley stubbornly declared, Here I fix my foot, on this I join issue with every asserter of it. You represent God as worse than the devil. Now, of course, this put a significant strain on the relationship, the friendship between Whitfield and Wesley. And the Methodists were soon divided between the predestinarians and the Arminians. Whitfield wrote, The doctrine of our election and free justification in Christ Jesus are daily more and more pressed upon my heart. They fill my soul with a holy fire and afford me great confidence in God my Savior. I know Christ was my all and all. The doctrines of grace were his theme, and he preached them in the fields and exhorted brothers in the gospel ministry. He wrote to another leader in the open-air preaching movement, and Whitfield exhorted him to, quote, "...put your hearers in mind of the freeness and eternity of God's electing love, and be instant with them to lay hold of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. Press them to believe on Him immediately." Speak every time, my dear brother, as if it were your last. What great counsel to any preacher of the gospel. The controversy became so intense that the two evangelists parted ways. Whitfield concentrated his effort more with his fellow Calvinists, with whom he formed the Calvinistic Methodist Conference. That association later became the Welsh Presbyterian Church. Wesley took advantage of the parting to solidify his influence in those Anglican churches that were favorable to the evangelical awakening, and soon he would organize and dominate them, and eventually this group would become the Methodist Church, which has always since that day 
been thoroughly Arminian. Well, Whitfield and Wesley's on and off feud lasted for 25 years. But in the mid 1760s, they tentatively reconciled with one another. Though they would never work as closely as they did at the beginning, they cooperated as much as their agreement on differences would allow. They loved each other deeply. They held one another in high esteem. This is a good lesson for us today. I know a lot of young guys like to go on social media and argue with people who they disagree with on social media because everyone thinks they know everything. Uh, But we're Christians. Let's remember that first and foremost. There's much we can do together. There's much we can pray for with one another. When Whitfield died in 1770, it was John Wesley who preached at his funeral. Whitfield displayed great love for Wesley as is evident in his letters and in his journals. Through that 25 years of disagreement, it was Whitfield who sought time and time again to restore the relationship. But for all of his faults, Wesley was used by God in a mighty way. Now, contrary to what you might assume because of what much of the Methodist church is today, Wesley never practiced or preached easy believism. He would have strongly opposed any manipulative tactics like the altar call or the repetition of a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart. He opposed all of that sort of thing. Later Arminians, like Charles Finney, promoted these ideas, but it wasn't John Wesley. The story is told of someone who had asked George Whitfield whether he expected to see Wesley in heaven, and Whitfield replied, no. But before the questioner could jump up to the wrong conclusion, Whitfield added, Mr. Wesley will be so close to the throne of Jesus, and I'll be so far away from it that I won't be able to see him. What a sweet friendship they had, even to the end, despite their differences. Well, what about his marriage? Before his second visit to America, Whitfield had formed an emotional attachment to a woman named Elizabeth Delamate. Whitfield had preached around the Blackheath area, uh, that's southeast London, where he first met Elizabeth. He appears to have struggled with conflicting thoughts. On the one hand, he was determined that he would spend his life for Jesus Christ. He was afraid that any romantic attachments that he might have would dull his passion for gospel preaching. On the other hand, his heart was drawn to Elizabeth. So after arriving in America for the second time, Whitfield passed through Northampton, Massachusetts and met and preached for Jonathan Edwards. Observing the relationship that Jonathan Edwards had with his wife, Sarah, made Whitfield desire to have a wife, and it prompted him to write two letters in April 1740. One letter was to her parents, and one letter was to Elizabeth. And he sent both of them to the parents. The parental one asked permission to propose marriage to Elizabeth, and if this was acceptable, to pass the second letter on to their daughter. The reason given to the parents that he wanted to marry her was the fact that several of the women who had come from England to assist in the work at the Bethesda home had died and he was in need of a helper to replace them. He was, let's say, less than romantic. He said in his journal, I am free from that foolish passion which the world calls love. I write only because I believe it to be the will of God that I should alter my state. Imagine being a parent and receiving that letter. The second letter was to be given, of course, to Elizabeth only if they approved. Nobody knows if she ever received that letter. There's probably never been a less romantic proposal in the history of the world. She did eventually marry, but not George Whitfield. She actually expressed doubt over her own salvation and thought to marry anyone who was in the gospel ministry was not for her. Now, Whitfield still felt the need to marry. He traveled from Scotland to Wales, and he there met a widow named Elizabeth James, who had a daughter named Nancy from her previous husband. She and a man, a preacher named Hal Harris, had formed a close attachment and probably should have married one another. But at the time, Hal Harris had the same doubts as Whitfield. How could he marry a woman and not be deflected from his devotion to his work for Christ? So he resolved to, quote, hand her over to Brother Wit. 
Now, initially, Elizabeth raised objections, but over a few days was persuaded that she should marry Whitfield, and so they were wed on November 14, 1741. Rather than going on a honeymoon, the newlyweds went off on a preaching tour. Whitfield wrote to his friend Gilbert Tennant, this is the best part of everything I will say tonight, he described his new wife Elizabeth as, quote, neither rich in fortune nor beautiful as to her person, but I believe a true child of God and would not, I think, attempt to hinder me in this work for the world, end quote. In other words, she doesn't have much, she's kind of ugly, but I think she's a Christian and won't get in my way. (laughs) He also said that although he was married, he was just the same as before marriage. And he hoped that God would never have him say, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Now initially, Elizabeth traveled with George, and when they did, he wrote that they traveled very pleasantly with one another. She also had a heart for the Bethesda home when she arrived there. She managed the home for a while until George sought to make it a seminary. She was very involved in his ministry. She corresponded with people. She copied down the writings on his third journey to America. She welcomed visitors into their home while he was traveling. And when they were together, she spent much time in prayer for him and his labors. In 1743, Elizabeth gave birth to their son in London. Whitfield was away preaching in Northampton when she gave birth, but when he arrived back, they named him John, and Whitfield pronounced at John's baptism at the Moorfields Tabernacle in London that John would grow to be a great preacher of the gospel. He was to be disappointed, however. His son was weak and died at four months old. Within seconds of hearing of his son's death, Whitfield called others to pray with him and bless God for giving him a son and then for taking him. Now, the next day was to be the funeral, so Whitfield, in the morning, went out to preach. And at the hearing of the sounding of the bells in the church, he was to stop preaching and to go to the church to bury his own son. He preached because he said, he remembered, a saying of good Mr. Henry that weeping must not hinder sowing. But accounts say that Whitfield's grief was present, but as a result, he was all the more committed to his task for Christ. He wrote, the text on which I had been preaching, namely, all things work together for good to them that love God, made me as willing to go out to my son's funeral as to hear of his birth. Our parting from him was solemn. We kneeled down, prayed, and shed many tears, but I hope tears of resignation. All this threw me into very solemn and deep reflection, but I was comforted from the passage in the book of Kings where it is recorded that death of the Shunammite's child. The woman's answer likewise to the prophet when he asked, Is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with thy child? And she answered, It is well. This gave me no small satisfaction. He wrote that he hoped that his son's death would teach him and make him more useful in his future labors to the church of God. His love for Christ and his work would always come first in his life. George and Elizabeth did not have any other children, but Elizabeth had written to a friend that she was going to remain in London after suffering four miscarriages within 16 months span of time. She was pregnant one more time, and historical accounts suggest that the child reached full term. However, Whitfield never once mentioned the child in any of his journals, and it is assumed that the child was stillborn. So throughout much of their marriage, Elizabeth stayed alone in London, enduring much sickness and thinking of herself as a burden to George as he traveled back and forth to the colonies to preach. He even commented at one point that she was living as a widow most of the time. Nevertheless, the marriage proved to be acceptable to both of them. Elizabeth, as opposed to feeling like she was deserted by her husband and not loved and cared for, she thought that she was a burden to him and that she was a hindrance to his ministry. And she thought that living a life married to George Whitfield meant a life of self-sacrifice that she was willing to make. Well, Elizabeth died on August 9, 1768, after a short illness, and George preached at her funeral from Romans 8 and verse 20. 
George Whitfield also had a very close relationship with Benjamin Franklin. For all intents and purposes, Whitfield himself was an entrepreneur. He pioneered innovative methods of preaching extemporaneously. His field meetings were new, and he utilized every form of media to spread the word of his events. People began hearing about his travel months or even years in advance, and they were drawn by the media to hear him preach. Whitfield also surrounded himself with the best experts in news media of his time, most notably that Philadelphia uh, printer, Benjamin Franklin, with whom Whitfield became lifelong friends. Now, they had an interesting relationship, as Benjamin Franklin, as I'm sure you know, was not a Christian. Whitfield routinely called on Franklin to trust in Jesus. For example, in 1752, he commended Franklin for his growing fame related to his scientific experiments. And here's what he wrote to him. He said, As you have made a pretty considerable progress in the mysteries of electricity, I would now humbly recommend to your diligent, unprejudiced pursuit and study the mystery of the new birth. One at whose bar we are shortly to appear hath solemnly declared that without it we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in spite of Whitfield's proddings, Franklin recalled in his autobiography that the preacher would sometimes pray for my conversion, but never had the satisfaction of believing that his prayers were heard. Nevertheless, Franklin insisted that he admired Whitfield's character and benevolent ministry. At Whitfield's death, Franklin wrote, I knew him intimately upwards of 30 years. His integrity and zeal in prosecuting every good work I have never seen equaled, I shall never see exceeded. Benjamin Franklin was instrumental in the advertisements of Whitfield's schedule and in the printing of his sermons and its distribution among the colonies. It is said that at one time Franklin was asked, why do you listen to his preaching? You don't believe a word that he says. To which Franklin replied, no, I don't, but he does. He admired him for his rhetorical skills and his deep devotion to Christ, and he never yet surrendered himself to King Jesus. Well, what about Whitfield's death? In the last weeks of his life, George Whitfield, who had never been a healthy man, found his bodily weakness an increasing problem. He sailed from New York on July 31, 1770, to Newport, Rhode Island, arriving in the morning of August 3rd. He preached almost every day, except for a few days when he was too ill, uh, roaming through northeast Massachusetts before arriving at Exeter, New Hampshire. Here he preached from a plank between two barrels, from 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself whether ye be in the faith. Some hearers said it was his best sermon ever. And as he stood to preach, someone said to him, Sir, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach. To which Whitfield replied, True, sir. At which time he turned aside and clasped his hands together and looked up to the heavens, saying, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work but not of thy work. I have not yet finished my course. Let me go and speak for thee once more in the fields. Seal thy truth and come home and die. So he rode on horseback 30 miles to Newport Berry, arriving in the parsonage of First Presbyterian Church. Exhausted, he went to bed, but people were pressing in on the doors of the house, still wishing to hear him preach. So he preached from the top of the staircase with a candle in hand until the candle burned out. His topic was justification and the insufficiency of works for righteousness before God. He preached, works, works, a man gets to heaven by works. I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. He went to bed, but he woke in the middle of the night struggling for breath. He believed it was asthma, but it was most likely heart failure. His friends tried everything to relieve his symptoms, but by 6 a.m. on September 30th, 1770, nearly three months short of his 56th birthday, they realized that he had at last passed into the presence of his Savior that he had loved and served for his entire life. The following Tuesday, 6,000 mourners gathered at his funeral, after which he was buried at the 
Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts, where he was scheduled to preach the day that he died. It took until November 5th for the news, about a week later, for the news of Whitfield's death to reach London. There was great mourning wherever the news spread. Thousands of people counted Whitfield as their spiritual father, and they mourned his loss. The London funeral took place in Totham Court Road Chapel on November 18, 1770. The chapel was draped with black material as signs of mourning, and it was not taken down for six months. The funeral sermon was preached by, as I said before, John Wesley. Again, despite their differences, Whitfield had been quite insistent before he died that Wesley was the man to preach the funeral sermon in England. People were so fanatical about Whitfield, one of his biographers, Robert Philip, relates a story about the left forearm having been removed from his casket and brought to England. It was eventually returned and reunited with the rest of the body in the casket, and the small wooden box in which it was returned in can still be seen at the First Presbyterian Church building. However, one of his thumbs was also removed, and it's in the archive at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. Harvard Medical School has a rib labeled George Whitfield. While leading an army to fight for the French, Benedict Arnold opened the grave and took Whitfield's clerical bands off of his body and the cuffs, and he cut them, and he gave each of his men a piece in the apparent belief that it would help them to win the fight. They lost. And so what is the impact? What is the legacy of George Whitfield? J.R. Green, in his short history of the English people, sums up the social impact of the Great Awakening the great revival that was fueled by George Whitfield's preaching. He said, The revival changed in a few years the whole temper of English society. The church was restored to life and activity. Religion carried to the hearts of the people a fresh spirit of moral zeal, while it purified our literature and our manners. A new philanthropy reformed our prisons, infused clemency and wisdom into our penal laws, and abolished the slave trade. Whitfield, along with the Wesley brothers, also helped plant seeds of world missions movements into the late 18th uh, 18th century. He offered a boost to missions to the Indians in North America. He indirectly contributed to American independence by preaching a gospel of spiritual liberty. It created a foundation for the political liberty of the colonists that they sought in the next generation. His frequent traversing of the land from one end to another served notably toward creating a sense of unity between the previously disunified colonies. And when the revolution was accomplished, uh, the principles of justice and equality written into the Constitution were principles that had been implanted in the public mind by this awakening more than any other influence from George Whitfield himself. And yet, Compared to John Wesley, compared to Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield is not as well known today. John Wesley was an organizational genius, as was his brother Charles. They built a Methodist society in Britain, nurturing uh, nurturing something stable for the long term, and they left enormous literary remains. And in the case of Charles, for example, you sing many of the hymns that Charles Wesley wrote here in this church. Today, the Methodist and Holiness churches, for example, the Church of the Nazarene, the Church of God, as well as some Pentecostal groups, they all look to Wesley as their father in the faith. They have a vested interest in keeping his work alive. But by contrast, Whitfield did not create any lasting institutions. There is no Whitfield church, and while he did gather together the Calvinistic Methodist societies, he turned all of the leadership over to others. Nor was Whitfield a profound thinker like Jonathan Edwards, whose works have been studied long after. Whitfield was a tremendous preacher. His sermons and diaries are interesting, but he left no body of writing that commands scholarly admiration. So here is the lasting, the one lasting thing that Whitfield has left behind that remains today. The Bethesda Home for Boys in Savannah, Georgia. And even to this day, it continues to operate differently, but still as a school founded by George Whitfield, into which he poured his entire heart. That was what he loved more than anything. 
Savannah, Georgia, to him, was a bit of heaven on earth. But nevertheless, Whitfield made popular the idea of bringing the gospel message directly to ordinary people. And if there is a defining characteristic of evangelicals today, it is the direct presentation of the gospel that was no doubt influenced by Whitfield. Ever since his ministry, evangelical Christians have had a driving concern to reach the common person. 300 years after his birth, George Whitfield is not entirely forgotten, but his fame is far dimmer than it was in the days when millions would clamor to hear him preach. Most of all, what we should learn from George Whitfield is his evangelistic passion and zeal. While unequivocal in embracing the doctrines of Calvinism, his greater passion and zeal was that sinners would be saved and come to be known as Christians. And so, brothers and sisters, let us, like George Whitfield, hold tenaciously to the doctrines of grace and boldly evangelize with the powerful gospel that all the world may hear that God might be pleased to give everlasting life to some. Whitfield's life and ministry provided powerful proof that these are united under our common head, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We need more George Whitfields in this world. And even though there are things about him that you maybe heard and will scratch your head over, all in all, the Lord used him in mighty ways. And we can be very thankful for that.